0: Uh, may be better than our broken hula hoop two balls and a half a bag of leaves and unraked lawn. <laughs> Fair point, Denise. Fair point. Um, this is what this session is about. Um, the disdain that we can sometimes have, a snobbery about another yard, assuming that that one is not up to snuff for hours, so I'm going to move to this one, The grass is always greener on the other side, uh, literally realized um, in our yards, but also in regard to our communions, in regard to our communions. And we cannot discuss John Keeble without discussing the person who Jeffrey Barbeau brought up last week as one of the great theologians of the time, John Henry Newman, who was his student, Keeble's student. Now, now that John Henry Newman has been canonized, we, now he's in the Pantheon. And uh, we can't, we've got to remember, think of him as an undergrad, in awe of the great John Keeble, walking around Oxford. There he is! Did, I, that's Keeble over there! It, it literally, in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, Newman describes that experience. My first sighting of Keeble across the quad at Oxford. And then I met him, and we collaborated. And so we must understand this friendship and a defection of the friendship, we might say, um, and understanding that tension that is still very much alive uh, for questions about Catholicism and the legitimacy of Anglicanism in this very town. We must dig into that deeply if we're to understand the importance of Keeble. So what I've got on this handout and um, there's a lot of material that you can peruse insofar as you are interested. And we're going to end with some Advent poetry, if we can get to it. But I have a lot of preliminaries that I think need to be covered, because there are some, and I, I want to beware the risk of saying, our yard is better, and those people are tacky over there. I want to instead have humility as we approach this. And I simply want to suggest that John Keeble's faithfulness, to a little tiny parish of Hursley, which is like all souls, was also legitimate. Is that too controversial of a thing to say? His departing from his heroic post at Oxford, where he inaugurated the Library of the Church Fathers, and the Newman came along as well and assisted in that, that great compendium of translated ancient Christian texts that fills libraries everywhere, Are unveiled in English for the first time because he was such a great classicist and he could translate, he edited the volume of Irenaeus himself. Going to the mind of the ancient church and lifting it from obscurity. He produced that. He produced that, and yet he said, My time as an academic was as a parenthesis in my life, because I departed not for Rome, not to become Roman Catholic, but to go to a small church. And what did he do there? He taught them what he taught Newman. Because Newman gets the idea of typology and seeing scripture and the world typologically. It's all pointing to Christ from Keble, And thank God he brought it to Roman Catholicism where, fast forward a couple of decades, um, it would then be revived by Henri de Lubac that we began with before. Do you remember? We looked at one of these great resourcimal theologians, a couple of, months ago. And we saw how he said something's wrong with brittle, dry, scholastic Thomism in my Roman Catholic church. And he said, I'm going to go back to medieval exegesis and understand the typological way that those ancient Christians read the Old Testament. They could well have been aware of the future developments in German historical criticism, but it didn't matter, because when they looked at the Old Testament, they knew that the ancient Near Eastern context was not enough. Instead, you saw Jesus, who was the one through whom, and is, and will be, the one through whom all things were made, saturates the Old Testament. And if that doesn't fulfill your requirements for academic objectivity, so what? Henri de Lubach recovers that and says, we need to restore this understanding. Praise be to God for that. Let's read the Bible the way the ancient Christians did. But what I didn't mention, because I hadn't realized it when I introduced that series, is that if you had just read Keebles, Tract 89, from 100 years before, you would have had all of that. It stayed in Anglicanism, that typological Christocentric way of reading the Bible. It was always in Anglicanism. I'm so glad it's been recovered in Roman Catholicism, partly because of Newman bringing the gifts of Anglicanism into the Roman Church. Thanks be <laughs> to God. But it was here in this communion as well. And Keeble was not of interest to me because I perceived him as domestic, as less exciting. Not in the the great celebrity convert that has to write an entire book defending himself against his enemies. He had very thin skin, (laughs) Newman. And of course, understandably, he's like, you're you're saying I'm illegitimate? I will write an entire book every single decade of precise developments of my opinion, lest you think that I was a conspirator of Rome the whole time. He has a right to defend himself. And yet, people, what is the manifestation of his life as he departs Oxford are these beautiful sermons and poetry of the Christian year. Poetry of the Christian year. Poetry that has been imitated and advanced by Malcolm Geith, who is a John Keeble of our time, staying in the Anglican communion, making beautiful poems, inheriting the history of intonations and rhythms of English poetry, as deconstruction was giving up on some of that, Malcolm Geith made a fascinating choice. He'll be here soon, by the way. He's coming back to town for the, the Getty Conference. And he said, I'm, I find that fascinating, but I'm just going to memorize the canon. He has the entire rhyme of the ancient era memorized. I've heard him recite it. You have to tell him to stop.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> He'll just keep going. And what that is is another manifestation of that fidelity, of staying within the Anglican communion, which isn't perfect, but is legitimate and doing what Keeble did, being a faithful preacher and writing poetry. So all this to be said, these are the things that are in the background. I want to unpack them insofar that it is helpful to you. Okay, we don't want to, this is not an academic lecture. I have this material here, but I want to just first call your attention and I want to ask if you have questions, raise your hand, ask them. We can unpack some of this. But what we've got here in the beginning is a chart that summarizes where we've been thus far. So if you look at that timeline, you will see, I I love how in the 1690s there was a a pamphlet, Christianity Not Mysterious, that'll fix it, right? It's not (laughs) mysterious. We're just going to get to the bottom of it. You can rationally understand it. And this is the spirit of the Enlightenment and of the idolatry of common sense that Keeble referred to that had gripped the Anglican Communion. And we saw that in this drama of Unitarianism that has been the discovery for me in this series. Has it not been fascinating? And Unitarianism is precisely rational. Now, at this point with the conversation that we have with Islam, I don't think Unitarianism is gonna be as live of an option because we've gotta instead have conversations with Muslims, right, because wow, now that's the Trinitarian difference. But then they were thinking, well, we'll just kind of have this rational faith and we'll move in the Unitarian direction. And so you have there 1712, the scripture doctrine of, uh, you have William Jones of Nylance, the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, which is opposing those who would critique the Trinity and move in a Unitarian direction. So you have these desperate cries of protest, of no, the Trinity is not invented. The gr- we just had a wonderful uh, conversation with a Muslim thinker who came to Wheaton and we drew very clearly the lines of the differences between the Christian tradition and the Muslim tradition. And what we said in this friendly conversation is that condelectus, mutual delight of the Trinity, is the highest form of love for great medieval thinkers like Richard of St. Victor. Mutual delight, self love, lower on the ladder. The highest is condelectus, mutual delight. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is God. The Trinity. Love is the core of the universe. Love that moves the sea and other stars. And Dante. That's the Trinitarian Christian understanding. To give up that, to have a solitary God that has a creation because he is kind of codependent and needs someone to tell him how great he is? No! Like a good relationship instead, God is already fulfilled in himself. So thank God, Anglicanism, with a little help we learned from Mary from Parliament, <laughs> kept this Trinitarian understanding. But that wasn't enough. We saw the evangelical revival. We saw Methodism. We talked about Charles Wesley. Unpacked the richness of those hymns, which are lived Trinitarianism. We didn't mention William Wilberforce. We've mentioned him before. But he dies the same year that the Oxford Movement begins. You have Charles Simeon, an evangelical. We've talked about him previously. And I love that image. The same Malta where Caravaggio had his repentance (laughs) is the place where Coleridge, the most brilliant Unitarian of all, comes to that decision. No Christ, no God. No Trinity, no God. So what a drama. Anglicanism is hanging on. If they didn't, would we even be here? we still have a rich Trinitarian understanding of the world. And in the midst of that context, Keeble comes along, and he is the one, according to John Henry Newman himself, his student, who is responsible for the Oxford Movement. What is the Oxford Movement? Keeble looks at this, does this sound familiar to you? Fashionable liberality in the wider Anglican Communion that is a liberalism of private opinion in the matters of faith, not having any degree of authority. It's, it's what I feel to be true. That is liberalism for both Keeble and for Nim. It's what I think is true. I don't think I agree with it. So how can it be true, <laughs> right? It's a default assumption for most humans in this part of the world. That liberalism, he attacks it, and a, a, an impatience to be rid of moral restraint. What, you're gonna tell me I can't do that with my body? What? This is, this is offensive to me. Again, rather familiar to our context, and Keeble cuts into it with his sermon on national apostasy, and it causes an uproar. Because people say, well, does this fit into our, uh, our, our evangelical box? Does this fit into our, are you a Methodist? No, I'm not. But I care deeply about personal holiness. Are you an evangelical? No. They're too populist. They're too enthusiast. They wear their feelings on their sleeve, and." the mark of the Oxford movement is reserved, reserved. But are you Bromish? No, but we believe deeply in the power of the sacraments. And the sacraments are restored to a place of honor. That candle is burning for a reason. The presence of Christ is made real. That is a typological view of the world. That this very building is an emissary of the New Jerusalem. And we have it painted there in case you forget. Everything in this building is saturated with meaning. We've talked about this over and over again in other catechesis sessions. We've talked about how the Ten Commandments are reflected in those lights. And that the ten best ways to live, as we talk about them downstairs, are not enough. Law cannot save you. And so these ten lights will grow dark at our Easter liturgy, until the light of the Easter sun bursts into the window. Law and gospel. We've thought over and over again about how the eight windows reflect the Beatitudes. We're surrounded by the stations of the cross, which look like highway peril signs, right? Caution, caution, caution. This is a powerful place to be. As Annie Dillard said, strap on your crash helmet, you're going to church. that that comes from the Oxford movement. We are in that lineage. We are in that tradition. And Keeble is a big part of that. And so what we've got here is Pusey and Keeble, who are these (coughs) architects, and then Newman decides, after off to Hursley Keeble goes to call his vocation and to follow in the footsteps of his father, who was a minister, Newman in 1845 decides, well... um, I I went a little more, I retreated for a little bit, and I'm thinking about becoming Roman Catholic, but I'm not ready yet, I'm going to betray a lot of my friends, they're going to be really mad at me, I'm going to have to write defenses of my own life. And then in 1845, he writes, and here's my duct-taped copy, because this was my first theological love, um, an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And in this essay, he justifies what he is about to do. He says, well, I've come to the conclusion that the Romish church, as it has been called, is the only legitimate church. And I must enter into it. And this is a disaster for the Oxford movement. But we must remember that Keeble says, well, I know my calling. I know my calling. I know where I am called. And I'm not going to condemn Newman for making the decision that he made. I don't think he's entered a false church. But he now wants me to enter his. That compliment is not returned, right? Newman converts into, well, is your Anglican communion legitimate? Well, no. I, I might try to gloss that as much as possible, but I actually don't think so because he wants Pusey and Keeble to follow him. How are we to respond to that? We must understand that if we're going to try to, uh, in some senses, put on not in the sense of fakery, but in the sense that the New Testament describes it, put on kindness, put on righteousness, to put on this typological, mysterious, sacramental view of the world that Keeble recovered. If we wanna put that on, we've got to have a response, I think, to Newman's conversion. How does one do that? How does one do that? Without um, just decrying the other yard, right? Acknowledging the legitimacy. A couple of ways that, um, for us to consider. I think if we go to William Law, who is the great mystic in the Anglican tradition in the modern epoch. William Law, for me, is, is the, the creme de la creme, uh, truly worthy of your study. And William Law wrote a, uh, letters to a lady inclined to enter into the communion of the Church of Rome. And in these letters, he says, he strikes precisely the notes that Keeble strikes. And here is what he says. Listen to this. Can I undo what they have done by my changing signs? Can I clear myself of schism by being a party with one against the other when both are to blame in what they do? Can I fix it by crossing the Tiber or becoming Eastern Orthodox? Will that just magically make it all go away? It's a fascinating critique. And what he also says in this is, I have, this is the beautiful part. I have so much trust and confidence in the goodness of God, in the care of his church, that I hope the beams of Christian salvation are fully preserved both in the English and Romish communions. For all such as are disposed to make a right use of them. I acknowledge the legitimacy of the Roman communion. The only time that I defend myself is when you tell me what we're doing here is not real. It is, as Newman called it, just a paper church. So Keeble is in that spirit. He's been shaped by William Law. He knows that tradition and he gives his defense. And so what you've got on this sheet, again, you don't have to walk through it in detail right now, is the tract 71. There were 90 different tracts for the Oxford movement. This was so attacked, this way of doing church, that they had to do these elaborate responses. And they will tax, if you're like me, your 21st century attention span. They are hard to work through. They are academic, but also pastoral. And they're just, this is why what we're doing is powerful. This spawns an architectural movement that changes the world. Neo-Gothic architecture is in some senses indebted greatly to this movement. Sacredness and liturgy. If you walked in a beautiful church space, you might thank both John Ruskin and the Oxford movement. And the Cambridge Camden Society that emerged from it. So with that said, you have this thing. We're, we're just saying, if you tell us what we're doing is illegitimate, here is our response. And then people didn't want to talk about Newman because um, he didn't want to disparage him. And so one, at one point, someone says, but really, what do you think about it? And he says, the mark of the cross seems rather to belong to those who struggle on in a decayed and perhaps still decaying church than to those who allow their imagination to dwell on fancied improvements and blessings to be obtained on possible changes of communion. The mark of the cross, those who agonize in difficult places. Now we have to also add that Newman bore a great cross as well. His, he, he suffered greatly because of his co- uh, conversion to Roman Catholicism. I'm not saying he doesn't have a cross. But Keeble says, do you think it was easy for me to be the country parson? In reading these, I am a, just to give you a sense of the character of this man. When he goes to this village, the village of Hursley, it's in the south of England. They grew familiar with the sight of a lantern bobbing down lanes and across field paths late at night when wise people were comfortably resting by the fireside. It sounds like the St. Nicholas story, doesn't it? (laughs) The vicar had gone out to visit and instruct some farmhand in his own home. Some lad who could not come to the ordinary confirmation class because his work kept him in the fields or with the beasts from dawn to dusk. That is the work Keeble is doing. And he dared... What does this have to do with this series? He dared to impart typology, that sense of seeing Christ in every passage of Scripture, Old or New Testament, and in every blade of grass, and in every roadside bush, and in every sheep in the field. He imparted that to everyday parishioners, not in the academic debates of Oxford. He said, you can experience this too. You can learn to see Christ everywhere. I picked it up from the ancient church, I'm passing it on to my parish, and now it continues at a place like all souls. I almost hesitate to put this in there, but it is the most single devastating response to Newman that I have read. It is from the greatest mystic in our tradition after William Law, in my opinion, Evelyn Underhill. And someone says, should I become Roman Catholic? And Evelyn says, If all the Tractarians had imitated Newman's spiritual selfishness, that's the bottom of the first page, (laughs) English religion today, unless God had raised up other reformers, would be dead as mutton. There is a great deal still to be done and a great deal to put up with as Anglicans. And the diet is often none too good. But we are here to feed his sheep where we find them not to look for comfy quarter. At least that is my firm belief. And most importantly for Underhill, the life of prayer, which is her passion, can be developed in the Church of England as well as anywhere else, if we really mean it. Isn't that powerful? You have enough here, she is saying. And again, when Thomas Merton was a toddler, Evelyn Underhill had already completely recovered the, the mystical tradition of Christianity. And I'm so glad Thomas Merton took it further. But let's just remember that. We've got that. Please! Yeah, um, if, if someone asked Evelyn you know, Underhill, in
1: what way was Newman being selfish, yeah. what would
0: what she say? That's a great question. Is What way has Newman... Be, this, is a, this is a letter. It's a response to someone's, And I think what she would say is the same thing that... William Law says, again, not to, he made the decision, it's done, it's a done deal, you've converted. But to someone who's wondering if they have to make it, huh, is this for you, or is this for the betterment of the church tradition? When continental bodies are are merging together, right, if you jump from one to the other, you've done nothing to, to bring them closer. Instead, why not stay in this continent and reach out to try to bring the two continents together? That's the the, the slow play. And so I'm not denying that some people would be called to orthodoxy or to Catholicism. But she seems to be saying, beware of the possibility of this serving oneself. And is that the case for all conversions? I would say absolutely not. But she is detecting what might possibly be the case in Newman. And that's quite a diagnosis. Now, you might say, oh, Evelyn Underhill, what does she know? Um, not, not that you would say that. Um, some would. Some would. Um, I love, I think I've probably shared this with you before, but the, the greatest Orthodox theologian in the 20th century, um, Sergius Bogakov, was at a conference, and he said, who is that little woman? She knows way too much. Um, speaking of Evelyn Underhill, when he saw her, and most importantly, and this is hugely important, her spiritual director was a Roman Catholic, and the most distinguished roman catholic of the day and so he helped her to discern that the spirit was calling her to stay in the anglican communion so really worth looking into that history so she's having she is roman catholic spiritual director who is saying to her you know evelyn um, i'm not going to pressure you into conversion where is god calling you go ahead how do we filter out the you know, yeah. and figure out like, okay, what's actually going on what's so interesting is that in the debates about Mary that Keeble and Pusey and Newman have, one of the things that is remarkable is that when Newman is cornered, he defaults to English nationalism as well, huh. even as Roman Catholic. It's fascinating. He'll say, well, okay, well, they're just, they're just not, li- I mean, it's, it's I, I I don't think that um, to suggest that Underhill is saying that, well, those are the dirty Irish people, right? Um, I'm not sure that quite would fit with her majestic embrace of all these great mystics that at that point, now Julian Norwich is a household name and Meister Eckhart and others, but then it wasn't there. She's the one that did a lot of that recovery work. And again, this is a private letter that I'm now making public, but I did find that interesting. Um, whether or not that accurately applies to Newman, it might apply to some um, who would make that, that move. Um, so good question. Let's be careful about that. But at the same time, um, I thought it was nice um, because especially considering the trolling that happens in the end of this book, that if you are in the Anglican communion, you must give up your delusions and join them. That's here. And that's what I'm defending against. And I think that's what Underhill is defending against. Okay, so you're saying that that's where all the answers are. Well, if controversy is something you're trying to avoid, as you all know, it's jumping from the frying pan into the fryer. You're just going to have more controversy, but it'll be of the Roman Catholic kind. But those controversies are our controversies too. I'm not trying to say I want to beware of that yard snobbery. One way to think about it is this. I was just at Villanova, and um, there was a Wheaton grad who converted to Catholicism who sat me down and was explaining to me that Newman style, it's time for you to jump in, too. That was kind of a tedious conversation. I appreciated what he said, and I you know, I, I know my Newman well, right? Um, and I really appreciate your... And then I would sit down with the cradle Catholics who have been a collective, four of them, were well over a century of being in Roman Catholicism, and they're like, well, why would you convert to Catholicism? Like, you're, you're where God has placed you. It's such an interesting contrast between um, this... Um, spiking the punch, so to speak, when it comes to, I have to now um, denigrate the place from which I came to justify the move that I made. With that said, um, a lot of difficult and sensitive issues to deal with. The next quote on the sheet, and I, David Bentley Hart is a double-edged sword, and I, and I hesitate to use it, <laughs> because it can come back and get you, um, but... If you want a great response to David Bentley Hart, just listen to Adam Wood's sermon uh, two weeks ago. Um, and David Bentley Hart is a gift to the church. I, I, I can never uh, throw him under the bus, as sometimes some people like to do because of how much he has meant to me. A brilliant Eastern Orthodox theologian, a convert from Anglicanism, um, and also very Anglican in spirit. And what I've got there is a quotation. I'm going to summarize it for you lest we have to read the 10-point font. And that quotation is what I consider to be a rather devastating answer to this book. And I've read Catholic defenses of Hart's response, and I found those defenses rather less than convincing. I think Hart is really on to something. And what he essentially says is this. Newman is saying, well, the true church is the Catholic church. That's the true oak tree. You can find it in acorn form in the early church. And then its maturity, I guess, is the Renaissance papacy. And then it grows further into now the great tree that it is today. And everybody else is dead branches. And he describes nine notes of development in this book of what a genuine charting of the growth of the oak tree of Catholicism should look like. So when you see these doctrines in the early church, when they're in their maturity, they become what Roman Catholicism is right now, the true, legitimate church. When you go to Westminster Cathedral in London, you will see this enshrined in stone, a defensive, understandably, because it was hard to be Catholic in England for a very long time, a defensive attack on Anglicanism and saying this is the true church, and then you go into Westminster Abbey, the Anglican outpost not far from it, and you will see an embrace that we do in our liturgy of both Thomas More and Thomas Cranmer, right? Hey, you made some hard decisions, and we're not going to denigrate him. And so what, what Hart does in this book, is, this book, Tradition and Apocalypse, he says, huh, so Newman, you're saying that the Oriental Orthodox Church in North Africa that has suffered profoundly, profoundly for their faith, under Islam, you're saying they're not, they're just a dead branch, are they? We could walk over to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church right now. They're probably about 40 hours into their service. <laughs> but of course, they're just a dead branch. The Church of the East, the greatest history of the Church of the East that I've read is called the Martyr Church because they've suffered more than anything. And they were preaching to Buddhists and Taoists in the 7th century and making it possible for any Buddhist who reads texts in Chinese or English, it's because of Christian translators who assisted them because they knew Chinese better. Philip Jenkins shows that in his great book on this forgotten communion. Oh, don't get too excited. Dead branch, dead branch. And of course, we're a dead branch too, according to Newman. And what Hart does, he just says, that is parochial and provincial, to say that this is the only legitimate communion. And he says, Newman, your organic metaphor, if you're saying, I'm looking at this beautiful tree as we say this, that the only tree is the Roman church, and that any dead branches are uh, just obviously don't have the vitality of the Roman church, he said, Well, what's happening is sometimes Rome would literally cut a branch down. They would mercilessly persecute heretics and then say, oh, you just don't have vitality. (laughs) And David Hart's like, from an organic metaphor perspective, if I burn down a forest, that's not because it lacks vitality. It's it's an act of arson. (laughs) And so he said, come on, Rome, be honest. And he says, this organic metaphor doesn't really work. And most importantly, it's not just a negative polemic, this book. Christian tradition as it is currently known, if it is a truly living unity, this is the last little bit of that David Bentley Hart quote, is yet a unity only partly grasped. Yes, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is part of the body of Christ and may yet open up into a fuller unity than that arising from its own isolated history to this point. How could that not be true? The mysterious unity of Ephesians 4 the one unity of the body of Christ. Keeble stays in the church because he has determined that this is a legitimate place. Newman says, this is the only church you should join. He does that according to his best defenders because he wants a larger communion. And the answer for Keeble to that is not, well, Newman, you're too daring and large and we're parochial and small. It's Newman, you're not large enough. You need to understand the full depth and breadth of the body of Christ. These are issues that vex the Anglicans and vex Roman Catholics. It's sensitive to hear these things. But I just want you to say that Keeble's life is the ultimate answer to that question. What you've got here, and some of these quotes are really worthwhile, is an essential description of Newman's love of Keeble. Even though they disagreed about where they would end up, Newman writes so glowingly about how I learned to read the ancient Christian fathers in the way that I do from this man. You've got the description of how Keble made this typological view of Scripture that we're talking about a reality for everyday people, seeing Christ again everywhere. The most humble Christian, this is the second part, um, uh, the, the large text quote on the, the third page of the handout. The most humble Christian, when exposed to the riches of this tradition and embedded in the rhythms of parish life, can acquire the habit of seeing the world as a text rich with divine grace and religious meaning. And in sermon after sermon, Hebel presses gently and relentlessly toward this goal. In these quotes that I hope are encouraging to you, I have um, a picture of our lights because thinking of them as almost a map to a typological reading of scripture that we talked about in previous times. And he describes how we are the body of Christ, not some imagined communion of intellectual stars out somewhere, but the actual people in front of you, the regular everyday neighbors that we find ourselves in communion with here at All Souls. That marked Keeble's understanding of the lived reality of Anglicanism in this small parish, and that marks us as well. What I've got as you keep going through the chart is that I move toward um, some of these understandings. I love this quote of all the ones that I could point to, We're in the um, page with the Christian year on it. I think this is the favorite quote of the ones I read. To be a Christian is to live with others through the drama of the church's year, to join with others present and absent, the communion of saints, living and dead, fellow parishioners and the communion of saints in telling and retelling the Christian story and to be transformed heart and mind by the telling of that story. Year after year, typology is embedded in our building because Keeble did that with the church architecture of his parish as well. Typology is embedded in the Christian year where like a spiral staircase, we do the same round again and again, hopefully higher up or even deeper into the depths, lower down each time. And so what I have there is just a couple of ways to understand more thinking about typology of our church. I imagine that those camels that used to be out there, um, that might be understood as those building plans that we had to build a huge wing to also's which would have put us all in debt forever. We sacrificed that camel, and that's how I account for the camel colored carpet here, (laughs) right? It's it's the hide of the idol of the big big church, right? And so we are now left with a more humble and realizable renovation. The rough places have been made plain, not the steps that we used to have outside. Remember when we turned that into a plane, that ramp that we built, and when Greg Lynch was planing these pews to try to make them not rock anymore the Advent understanding of giving an even ground to what we have here. And then finally, um, we've talked before about Keeble's Mother Out of Sight, the great Marian poem of Anglicanism, in my opinion. And Mother Out of Sight is exactly what it is. All this stuff is public domain. Please read it. Um, it's wonderful. He's saying Mary's not in this church, and she should be. And then you have Advent poetry for this particular year on the left in the last part, and then you have Malcolm Guy. Now, Malcolm Guy is wise enough to not try to replicate Keble, because he would have a different poem for each Sunday of the church year in the Christian year. Instead, he takes the O antiphons of Advent. And if I may be honest, this is the last thing I'll say we've got to be done, um, is that Malcolm, there's a little bit of, um, you read Keble, and it's heavy, it's heavy. I mean, he says, each one of you, I, I can't say this because I'm not a priest here, but he said, I will be at the throne of judgment with you. With you. So with that said, um, he takes Advent very seriously as a time of judgment. Um, but so what you see is, is Malcolm Guy, I think he restores that note of grace. I think the O Sapientia poem is one of the most, it's the greatest response to Descartes that I know of. Um, and it in, is embedded with that William Law mysticism. Enjoy these. Enjoy this season. I kind of feel in some ways it's even better than Christmas because we're not going to get all the joy just yet, but we are in a time of waiting, metaphysically speaking, in our world right now. Christ does not yet come. So Advent is beautiful. I hope this enhances that, and I hope we can respect the legitimacy of both yards, no matter the tacky decor. Thank you very
1: much, everybody. Thank you. Um, That was wonderful. Um, It really gives us a wonderful appreciation of our tradition, I think, to think about that. We have these great writers like Keeble. I know, for one, I want to get his book on the church year because I'm really uh, intrigued by it. Um, Next week, we are going to have a real treat. Um, Melody Schwarting is going to be sharing with us the advent poems of Christina Rossetti. And so we're gonna get more, more poetry next week. Next week you're also gonna hear more about where this poem, O Sapientia, came from. And because it is a part of the, um, what we call the the seven days before Christmas where we pray, pray a specific name of, a Latin name of God um, every before evening prayer. So I don't know about you, but Advent is becoming one of my favorite seasons, so. Thank you, and you, you're dismissed to Whatever you're doing next, going to church or going home?